If you have a Bible tonight, and I certainly hope you do, you can open it to Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two. We will not be there long as we will journey through lots of chapters in Revelation, but we will certainly uh, start there. So Revelation chapter two, and uh, we're going to dive right in. I have a whole lot of information that you may or may not care about, but we are going to look at it together uh, tonight. So Revelation chapter two, uh, in case you are unaware, we have been reading through the New Testament together as a church. And so in our midweek time, we take parts of our Bible reading from that week and we discuss it together uh, in this setting. And so if you are reading at the same pace that I am, then you have read through Revelation chapter 8 as of today. If you're a nighttime reader, hopefully that will be tonight. If you're behind a few chapters, that means you'll catch up sometime this weekend, which is fine. But as I've been reading through and preparing for tonight, I have read through Revelation chapter 8, which is where we will finish up our discussion discussion tonight. Now, as we begin our conversation, I do want to give just a very quick review of our conversation in Revelation from last week. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail. If you missed that conversation from Revelation chapter 1 and you would like to get caught up or listen to it, uh, you can certainly find our podcast anywhere that you can find podcasts, and you can listen to the midweek time from last week. I will tell you it was not that impressive, and so this that I'm about to say will suffice. So you don't have to go back uh, and listen, but I do want to make sure... Uh, that we refresh a little bit from last week with the amount of content that we are about to cover. Now, we answered several questions about the book of Revelation. We talked about the who, the when, the where, the what, the why, all of those things that were behind the book. Now, most importantly, we learned three important purposes for the book of Revelation. Here they are. They're just reminders. As we process through the book, as we think through what John was writing, as Jesus instructed him, we want to do it through these three lenses. The book was written for enlightenment. Revelation certainly has information that God wants his followers to know so that they can grow closer in their relationship with him. People who read Revelation and struggle to understand what it means and get frustrated, that's not a bad thing. We want to try to understand what it means. Why? Because he gave us this information to enlighten us so that we can know more about him and grow closer to him. So it's good that it was written for enlightenment and that you wrestle with the difficulty of the content. It was written for encouragement as we face a hostile world that doesn't care about God. Very much like that of John's day when he wrote this book, we're encouraged by the victory that all believers have in Jesus, regardless of the obstacles and persecutions that we face today. So the book, though we may get frustrated in some of the symbolic meaning, ultimately is for our encouragement to know that Jesus is victorious. And then thirdly, it's written for engagement. The book was written for more than enlightenment, more than encouragement. It was written to lead us to live obedient lives in Jesus. It was written to challenge us to engage our world with the gospel of Christ. So don't forget these lenses, even in the chaos of what we talk about tonight. Even if you leave here with a big question mark on your forehead, just remember, everything you read in Revelation needs to be through these three lenses. Understand what you can. It's for enlightenment. Be encouraged by what you can. It's for encouragement. Allow it to challenge you to share the gospel because it's for engagement. Whatever piece is in the letter, in the book, that will lead you to these three things. Allow these to be the focus, the lens that you look at the entirety of this letter. Now, 
I want to give you a crash course in what we've read up until this point, or at least I've read up until this point in Revelation chapter 8. Now, I want to remind you that Jesus tells John what to write in this book in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. As a matter of fact, he gives a clear outline to the entirety of this letter. It's actually in your notes, I believe. Here's what Jesus tells John. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, John writes about the things that you have seen. We've already discussed most of these, but he writes about Jesus and the victory that we have in him. He writes about the vision he's received from Jesus to challenge and to change the church. He writes about the past and how Jesus came to bring new life. As a matter of fact, if anyone has seen these things, if anyone can think back to the past of what they've experienced, it is in fact the apostle John. Why? He walked with Jesus. And so he's writing about what he knows to be true in our relationship with Jesus. Now, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, John spends some time writing about what Revelation 119 would call those that are, the things that are taking place in the present. He writes to seven churches of his day located in Asia Minor. If you're wondering where that is, that is modern day Turkey. Now that's where I want us to begin our discussion tonight in Revelation 2 and 3 as we look at what I would like to call first the saints the saints that we encounter in the early parts of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now I love how Charles, Charles Swindoll sums up the letters that are written in these two chapters. Here's what he writes. He says, each letter includes an initial identification of Christ. Then the content of the message follows, which Christ observes about each church. This includes, here's what he writes, any commendation, concern, correction, or counsel that he may have with these churches. And finally, Christ ends with a call to action for those who have ears attuned to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. So there are these five elements, mostly, this is the pattern that we find in the letter to the churches. Commendation, concern, correction, counsel, call. That's what he gives to each of them. Now, most of the letters follow that pattern, but there are a few differences. Here are the differences. One of them is found in the last letter that is written to the church at Laodicea. The final letter includes, unlike all of the others, zero commendations. In other words, zero encouragement is offered on behalf of the church of Laodicea. Apparently, this church was in such a poor condition that there was nothing that Jesus could celebrate with this church. They are an exception to the pattern. Now there are two other exceptions to the pattern. They're found in Smyrna and they're found in Philadelphia. Whereas Laodicea received no commendation, Smyrna and Philadelphia received no correction. Apparently they are opposite from the church at Laodicea. These churches seem to have everything together. Now I want to give you a crash course in the various ways that people look at at these different letters, how they interpret what's written to these churches.
churches. Now, for me, the best way that I've seen this communicated and understood is by a commentary writer by the name of John Phillips. And here's what he tells us. The first way to view these letters is practically. Practically, these are seven churches and seven letters written to these specific locations in Asia Minor. Now, let me give you a little detail about what these churches represent. The first one is Ephesus. This is what he would call the formal church, the beginning of church. He commends their good works, their endurance, and their discernment. However, he corrects their departure from their first love. This is what John would call the formal church. Now, not John the Apostle, but John Phillips who wrote the commentary. The second one is Smyrna. He would call this the fearful church. Jesus commends their faithfulness in persecution, and he corrects zero about how they have operated. Now, he refers to them as the fearful church because they are constantly suffering at the hands of the world around them. The, sec the third one is what he calls the faltering church. So we got the formal church, which is Ephesus, the fearful church, which is Smyrna, the faltering church, which is Pergamos. Now, Jesus commends their faithfulness and persecution, just as he does in Smyrna, but he corrects their idolatry, their false teaching, and their immorality. They are called the faltering church as they begin to go on a downward slide, as many churches do. Then we have the false church. This is the church of Thyatira. Jesus commends their love, their faith, their service, and their endurance. However, just like the church at Pergamos, he corrects their idolatry, their false teaching, and their immorality. Then we find the fruitless church. This is the church at Sardis. Jesus commends the faithful few who remain, but he corrects hypocrisy and incomplete works. Then we find the feeble church. They are suffering, but they are strong. This is the church of Philadelphia. Jesus commends their good works, their endurance, and their faithfulness. And once again, as with Smyrna, he corrects nothing about this church. And then the last one we find is what John would call the fashionable church. This is the church of Laodicea. Jesus commends nothing about this church, but he corrects their pride, their materialism, and their laziness. The first way you can view these letters is practically. These seven churches in their context, which are all unique, teaching about what they need to correct as Jesus would have it. The second way to view these letters to these churches is philosophically. Many people think that these are not necessarily just specifically to seven churches who have seven needs, but these are concepts that go to all churches for all time that are essential for every one of us. In other words, sometimes we're in an Ephesus state of church life. Sometimes we're in a Smyrna state of church life. So on and so forth. Philosophically, what Jesus teaches to these churches is what he teaches to all churches throughout their various seasons of existence, depending on what they need to be commended and what they need to be corrected. Now, there's a third way to view these letters, and this is prophetically. You may have heard a little bit more about this one because in Southern Baptist circles, this is a very speculative type of thinking of these letters, but it does create a lot of entertainment. It does create a lot of fear tactics, and it does make us very curious about the symbolism that we read in these letters. Now, this suggests that Jesus was revealing through these seven letters to these seven churches, seven different phases throughout church history. 
history. Church age began the moment that the church was born in Acts chapter 2. It has continued until today. People who believe in the prophetic version of uh, a view of these letters would say that each of these churches represent a segment of time throughout church history to give us a clue into what the Lord's been doing in the church from the beginning until Jesus will return. I'll give you a crash course in this because I think it's interesting, although not necessary, but we will anyway. Let me give you an example. There is Ephesus, which is considered the post-apostolic church phase. This is after the apostles are gone. It's represented by the gradual falling away from their first love. Then we see Smyrna. This is considered the persecuted church phase, represented by centuries of persecution from Emperor Nero all the way to Emperor Diocletian. They would say that these are the two church ages that are represented between these churches. Then you get to the corrupted church phase. This is Pergamos, represented by Constantine's attempt to combine church and state. W.A. Criswell, one of my favorite preachers of all time, called this the moment the church is married to the world. Then there's the pagan church phase. This is Thyatira. It's represented by the connection of the church with Jezebel. Many consider this to be the beginning of the rule of the Roman Catholic Church. They equate Jezebel and her rule to the same as the Pope and the type of authority that he carried among the church. Then we have the Reformation Church phase. By the way, yesterday was Reformation Day. You might better know it as Halloween. But in church circles and Reformed theology, we call it Happy Reformation Day. Sardis is the Reformation church phase. It's represented by the reputation of being alive, but actually being dead. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. Here's what Jesus said to them. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have had not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is characterized by the faithful reformers. I'll I'll give you a few of them. Luther, Wesley, Calvin, Whitfield, Edwards, there are many more that we could include in this list. This is the transition from the Roman Catholic Church and the rule that it had between church and state to the Reformation days when the church came back to the inerrancy of the Word of God and faith through grace by Jesus alone. Praise God, we were birthed from these types of discussions. Then you have the practical church phase. This is characterized by Philadelphia. It's represented by revivals and missions. This would include names in the church age like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice. Those are some of the people who come to mind during that age of the church. And then we have the current church phase. We would call this Laodicea. It's represented by the lukewarm nature of the church today that claims, listen to this from Revelation 3.17, claims, I am rich I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is the church age in which people who view these letters prophetically would say that we are now in closer than ever to the end of the world. Now, for me personally, whether you care to know what I think or not is really irrelevant, but I'll tell you anyway. 
I find myself, I know this seems to be a cop-out, but I really do find myself connecting with all three of these particular interpretations. I do believe that Jesus was speaking to seven literal churches. I do believe that those apply, those principles apply even to us today in any church that has ears to hear. But I also think Jesus is giving us a picture of the church throughout history. He is writing to all saints in all history. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter 4, we discover a very important piece in the timeline of Revelation and the church, at least, at least depending on how you interpret the events of Revelation. So I feel like it's important to introduce you to these concepts now, even though we will reevaluate these concepts as we go in our short time in this book. Let me show you what I mean. These are what, what are known as the primary views of the second coming of Jesus. This would be your eschatological view that doesn't matter either. But in some variation, you will fall into one of these three primary views of the second coming of Jesus. Here's the first one. It's known as ah millennialism. Ah millennialism. All of them are going to have the word millennialism in it. The reason is because they are all related to when you believe the millennial reign of Jesus will begin. It will begin when he returns. And so that's why it's all views of the second coming of Christ. Now, what is ah millennialism? Well, I didn't have enough space in your outlines to put all of this. And so I left you some blanks in case there's anything that stands out that you want to write. This is the simplest view of the millennial reign of Christ, but it is probably not the most popular view in the room tonight. It is held mostly by people with reformed theology. Nothing wrong with reformed theology, but most typical traditional conservative Southern Baptists lean a different direction than Reformed. Not all, but many. And so probably in the room, you grew up not within the realm of uh, Reformed theology, and so you didn't hear as much about ah, millennialism. Now, this view holds that the millennial reign of Christ is actually happening right now. So if you were to flip over to Revelation chapter 20, don't but if you did, and you will read that soon enough, you will encounter the millennial reign of Jesus. And so depending on your view of the second coming of Christ, you might believe the millennial reign of Jesus has already begun. The church age began the moment that the church was born in Acts chapter 2. If you're an amillennialist, you believe that from that moment till now, the church age and the millennial reign of Jesus have been happening simultaneously. Now, rather than a physical kingdom that will last for a thousand years on earth, they believe the thousand years has been happening already in heaven with those who are with Jesus. By the way, they also don't believe in a literal thousand years. It's more like saying, hey, it's going to last for a long time. All right, that's the view. Now, Nothing wrong with that. There are a lot of symbolic meanings in Revelation. It is very possible that the thousand years does not mean a literal thousand years. And so they believe that kingdom has been happening on earth. Now, they believe also that those who are, that, that a physical kingdom that will last a thousand years on earth, they believe that the thousand years has been happening already, not necessarily on earth, but in heaven with those who are already with Jesus. This comes from statements in the gospel where Jesus is like, people are like, when is the kingdom of God going to happen? And Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's already here. He's proclaiming that that day is coming from his resurrection. That's what an amillennialist will believe. They believe that the events in Revelation have already happened 
or are happening now. Most people who hold to this view would believe that most of the comparisons in Revelation actually have to do with the Roman Empire and the events that happened from the fall of Rome. Nothing wrong with that viewpoint. They think of Revelation more in history with a few things yet to happen versus other views that believe none of it has happened and will at some point come to be. And so if you're an amillennialist, you believe that most of the things in Revelation link with something in history that has already happened or is currently happening now. Now this view holds that when Jesus returns, the rapture, which is the resurrection of the living and the dead who follow Jesus, the defeat of Satan, judgment of the world, creation of a new heaven and a new earth, all the prophetic events of Revelation will happen at once and then eternity will begin. And so just to be clear, the events of the millennial reign of Jesus have already happened or are happening now. We may already be in the end time signs portion of the tribulation. We may already be in latter parts of the tribulation. We may be on the very verge of Jesus coming down in the clouds, calling up his own and ushering in a new heaven and a new earth after the judgment of the world. If you're an amillennialist, you would believe that that day is soon approaching. Nothing wrong with amillennialism, by the way. If you fall into this category, fantastic. They have plenty of scriptural basis for why people are this particular view. I want to show you a second view. This is postmillennialism. Amillennialism, postmillennialism. They're similar in some regards. This view also suggests that Jesus will return after the millennial reign. Once again, Revelation chapter 20. Now what's different about post-millennialists is that they believe the gospel will advance to a point that the earth will experience a season of peace. The church age, in a sense, will simply become the millennial reign where the gospel will flourish and we'll see a season of revival. Now the idea that they hold to this is because the gospel flourishes and the majority of the world will follow God's standards, so it will naturally usher in a time of peace and righteousness. Now this view in particular suggests that after the millennial reign, after whether it's a literal thousand years or just a long time, that is when Jesus will return, the rapture will take place, Jesus will defeat Satan, judge the world, create a new heaven and new earth, and will live in eternity with us forever. They conclude that the second coming of Jesus will happen in the same type of way in which amillennialism believes in the second coming of Jesus. The third one where most people in this room probably traditionally stand is what we call pre-millennialism. Now there is a fourth one, and I joked about it tonight with uh, Ron McCulley. There's also pan-millennialists. I don't know if any of you have heard about them. They're the ones who just think it's all going to pan out in the end. So you could also be a pan-millennialist. That's fine. Premillennialist, though, is a, is, a, is a more traditional Southern Baptist view of the events of Revelation. Once again, nothing wrong with any of these views. I want to overstate that as much as I can. You want to know why there's nothing wrong with any of these views? Because we don't know. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know. I know Jesus is coming back. I'm going to be with him, right? What else do you need to hear? You know what I'm saying? But for information and deciding how you will view and interpret Revelation, these do come into play with your reading and understanding of the book. Now, this view, most traditional view among Baptists, especially the ones that I grew up around, so I've heard about this view more than any of the others, although I have a lot of friends who are amillennialists and their viewpoint Today I'm a premillennialist. Tomorrow I might be an amillennialist. I don't know. They've got some convincing arguments, so we'll see. But right now, this is pretty much uh, where I stand. Now, this view holds that the church age will end 
and the tribulation will begin. This, by the way, is probably most popular because I don't know how many of you have seen the Left Behind movies, but it kind of follows more of a timeline that fits within a premillennialist than any other view of the second coming of Jesus. I'm not saying Hollywood helped that. I'm just saying it created more awareness for this particular view. Church age will end. Tribulation will begin. Once the tribulation has ended, Christ will return and defeat the devil by binding him in a pit, and he will set up a thousand-year kingdom on earth. Now, not all of them believe in a literal thousand years, but most premillennialists believe in a literal thousand-year reign here on the earth where Jesus will be king and everyone else will be subjects. There will except for those who come with him and reign. We'll get there at another point in time. Anyway, now, during this millennial reign of Jesus, many will come to faith in Christ, and others will still choose to reject him. Now, once the thousand-year reign of Jesus has ended, the devil will then be released to gather his armies for one final battle. This will be all those who were alive during the millennial reign of Jesus who rejected him and secretly sided with the enemy. So, he will raise up those with him into the final battle in which Jesus will ultimately win. Then he will judge the world and create a new heaven and a new earth. And then we will all walk away into eternity. Now, just for the sake of understanding different arguments and because I read a whole lot on it, so I just felt like I should share it. There are different types of premillennialists. Now, we're not going to go into the different ones, but there is one particular difference about premillennialists that I do think is interesting for your understanding of the events of Revelation. I want to tell you about them now. These are the views that premillennialists have about the rapture. You've heard of this before, I hope, right? When God will resurrect the living and the dead who follow him to meet him in the air. Now, there are three of these. I'll go through them quickly. Some premillennialists are what we would call pre-tribulation premillennialists, right? That's not a mouthful to explain to somebody about your eschatological view. <clears throat> Thanks some water after all of that. This view, pre-trib view, refers to God rapturing the church at the end of the church age, but before the tribulation begins. This is the idea that all of the church will be spared from the judgment that God will place on the earth. The mid-trib view refers to God rapturing the church in the middle of the tribulation. Most hold to a seven-year tribulation from prophecies in Daniel, where there seems to be a break at a three-and-a-half-year mark. This would lead mid-trib people to believe that the church will experience some of the tribulation, but not not the moments when God's wrath is poured down on the earth. We'll be spared from that. And then there's the post-trib view. This refers to God rapturing the church after the tribulation, but before the millennial reign of Jesus. Now listen, because there are these different views, when we get to Revelation chapter 4, these views begin to take effect. That's why I'm telling you about them now. Because if you are a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist, you believe that the rapture takes place at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4. Now, I will do my best in, in our short study of this book to highlight the differences between both amillennialists and premillennialists as we go through the different 
current scenes. I will not do much with post-millennialists, and it's really more personal. It's just I don't think their viewpoint is any good, so I'm not going to talk about it. If you want to know more about post-millennialists, you are welcome, of course, to do as much studying on that as you want, and you are more than happy to come argue with me and try to convince me that I should be a post-millennialist. I'm fine with that, but I do think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to think through these lenses to decide how you will read the book of Revelation. Now, hear me out. It's not essential to know which viewpoint you hold. However, based on which view you hold, you will interpret the events of the book of Revelation differently. You say, Danny, I don't really care. Well, here's what I will tell you. Even if you don't choose a viewpoint, you will still look at the book of Revelation with one of these viewpoints. And so you may not say it's your viewpoint, but you will still interpret the book based on whether or not you are ah, post, pre, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. All of that will affect your view of the book of Revelation. So I don't care where you are. I don't care which one you hold to, but it will help to clarify why you think what you think. I'll give you an example. If you're a pre-trib, pre-millennialist, you would believe that the rapture will happen in what John writes in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. After this, I looked. He's getting a glimpse into heaven. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this vision makes even more sense if you connect it with the end of what is written to the church at Laodicea. This is in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So if you're a premillennialist who believes in the pre-trib view, you would suggest that when we start Revelation chapter 4, that door is being swung open for the entire church. As a matter of fact, though I am not a pre-trib, premillennialist, spoiler alert, I do love some guys who are. And so I want to share with you a little note from, once again, one of my favorite preachers, W.A. Criswell. He is a pre-trib, or was a pre-trib, pre-millennialist. Now he knows, maybe. Actually, I guess not. Jesus doesn't even know when the day or time or hour. So anyway, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. But anyway, here's what he writes. He says, metatauta, that's the Greek uh, words for after these things, that phrase in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. He says, that phrase means, write the things which shall be after the churches, when the churches are no more. Write the things which shall be after the things of the churches. That's how he interprets it. He says, when we come to chapter 4, we are told by the Spirit of God through the revelation made to John that now we are to see what God is to do after the things of the churches. After the churches are no more, after the churches are gone, after the churches are taken out of the world. Metatauta, after the things of the churches. So when we come, therefore, to Revelation 4, we are entering the final consummation of the age. All church history now is past. The thousands of years that God has been preaching the gospel through his ministers and all the thousands of years that God has upheld the light of Christ in his churches, all are no more. They are taken away. Beginning with chapter 4, we enter the great period of the judgment of God upon the earth after God's people are taken away. Now listen to me. This viewpoint, by the way, once again, none of the viewpoints are wrong. 
This viewpoint is held by a lot of Southern Baptists that I know, and that's fine. I want to tell you why I believe this view is held by most Southern Baptists, and I want to tell you why I believe most of you probably hold to this view, and I'm not mad about it. As a matter of fact, I really want to hold to that view. Here's why. This letter is terrifying. The events that we read about are scary. I don't want to be here when they happen any more than anybody wants to be here when they happen. So if you're a pre-trib, pre-millennialist, here's what you get to praise God for. God, I ain't going to be here for none of it anyway, right? And so listen. I am not mad at anybody who holds to this view. There are scriptural references. There are arguments in the Bible that point to this. There are plenty of reasons why people should be pre-trib, pre-millennialists. I'm fine with that. Matter of fact, it's easier because you can trust now, whether it happens or not, you can trust and be encouraged that you will not experience what the world will go through during that time. Now, we know there will come a day when the church will be taken from this earth. We call this the rapture. Now, in case you didn't know, rapture is nowhere in the Bible. Rather, this is a resurrection of the living and the dead who followed Jesus when he comes back in his second coming. Now, the Bible speaks to the rapture on several occasions. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Once again, can I just remind you of something? I don't know when the rapture is going to happen. I don't know where it falls in the timeline of Revelation. Guess what? Nobody does. You want to know why? It's a mystery. So don't get too caught up in where you think it will happen or bummed out that you might be wrong. Who really cares, right? It's a mystery. But listen to what Paul writes. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The Apostle Paul writes about it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So let me just, if you fit into this view, Revelation chapter four, verse one, God is opening the doors of heaven to receive his people. A voice like a trumpet is sounded and the voice says, come up here. That sounds very similar to some of the verses we read about the rapture. Those who hold to this view believe that John was a type he represents all of the church that will be called up to heaven. And once the church is called up, then Jesus says, Revelation 4.1, I will show you what must take place after this. After what? After the rapture. Several judgments will take place. Matter of fact, listen to how Jesus describes this particular time of judgments in Matthew chapter 24. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. If you're a pre trib, pre millennialist, then by the time you hit Revelation 4, chapter 1, you can rejoice that the scary events that you are about to read about will not pertain to you if you believe in Jesus. Now listen, I don't hold to a pre-trib view. I might tomorrow, you might have convinced me just now as I've talked out loud with myself, but as of the last few moments, I am not. What I do hold to is a premillennialist view. However, I personally hold to what I would refer to as the mid-trib premillennialist viewpoint, and I will explain why I hold to this view. 
John wrote this just a few verses before in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what he wrote to one of the churches. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now listen, I believe that we will experience trials and tribulations and sufferings as Christians, but I don't believe that the Lord will leave us on the earth for the wrath that he will pour out later in Revelation, which by the way, we won't really get to tonight. But Combined with that, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, talking about Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now some people would say that refers to hell. I would say the phrase wrath of God pertains specifically to the judgment that will come upon the world. Here's the beautiful thing about giving our lives to Jesus. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to be punished for our sin. But instead of us receiving the wrath of God. Jesus received his wrath in our place. That's the beauty of the cross. It's the beauty. So I fully believe that as the church, we will not experience the full wrath and judgment of God. We've been saved from that by Jesus. But here's why mostly I am mid-trib. You say, Danny, all the things that you just said made me think we're pre-trib. I agree. But it's hard to read what Jesus said about the end times in Matthew chapter 24. Matter of fact, specifically, Matthew 24, verses 7 through 29. Now, I'm not going to read them. You can. But it's hard for me to read them and not understand that the church will experience at least a portion of the tribulation. Based on what John writes about the seven seals and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, I truly believe the church will experience the first half of the tribulation. So I am, in fact, a mid-trib pre-millennialist in my eschatological view about the end times and the second coming of Christ. Now, I know that was a lot. I'm with you. Just know we could spend even a whole lot more time on this <laughs> if any of us in this room wanted to, which we don't. So that's the end of that discussion. But what I really want us to do very quickly, by the way, you're like, Danny, all we did was get through like chapter four, verse one. I, I know it's going to go faster. I promise. What I really want us to see is some things that Jesus shows John that leads up to the opening of the seven seals of the scroll. And so I want us to continue to move from this saint's picture that we see in Revelation 2 and 3. And I want us to move to what I would call songs. Now, there's nothing significant, by the way, about these words. This is just the best way that I could get us through the text that we're going to look at without completely sounding like a professor, uh, you know, in a seminary that's teaching a course on Revelation. I'm trying my best. That's not my style. I really hate everything to do with a teaching format, but it just is what it is. So we looked at the saints. Now we will look at the songs. Now in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus gives John a glimpse of heaven. He sees one seated on the throne. I hope that you've already read this. And he gives us a description of the one on the throne and the throne itself. And he sees other beings in the scene that I want us to notice. Matter of fact, when you read it, you may have thought, who are these beings? Me too. Guess what? I don't know, but I'll give you some thoughts. 
The first group are 24 elders around the throne. We discover by the end of Revelation chapter 4 that they cast down their crowns when the one on the throne is praised. Who are these elders? Well, some see them as an eternal priesthood of God's people. Others see them as martyred saints of Asia. Others see them more popularly, popularly as representing the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles. The truth is we really don't know. Here's what we do know. They are a council of redeemed saints, old and new, worshiping at the throne of God. Then we discover four living creatures. Here's what we read in Revelation 4, verses 6 through 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Who are these freaky looking creatures? Well, there are a lot of suggestions about who these creatures are. Some suggest that they are angels known as seraphim and cherubim. They are pictured also in descriptions from Isaiah and Ezekiel that are very similar to the one we get in Revelation. The descriptions they receive are reflections of the order of nature and how all of creation is subject to God. The eyes symbolize that nature is ever watchful to give praise to God. The truth is, I have no idea who these living creatures are around the throne. Here's what's most significant. Here it is. You ready? What they're doing around the throne. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at Revelation chapter Chapter 4, verse 8, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are they doing? They're singing songs of praise to the only one who is worthy. John continues in verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What are they doing? They're singing songs of praise to the only one who matters. Day and night, the living creatures and elders surround the throne of God with worship. The goal of all things. Can I give you a clear glimpse of what I think is happening in Revelation chapter 4? I think John, Jesus is saying to John, those of the Old Testament will be found praising the one who matters. Those of the New Testament will be found praising the one who matters. All of creation, the natural order of things, will be found praising the only one who matters. We see the saints in the early portions of Revelation. We see songs in the early portions of Revelation. Next, we see scrolls. Oh, we got to go fast. I'm sorry. Scrolls. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, there are two scrolls that we actually find. We won't read about the next one until Revelation chapter 10. We're actually only going to look at one tonight. As we enter Revelation chapter 5, John is still looking into heaven. However, no, now he notices something else in the hand of the one who sits on the throne of God himself. Here's what it says, Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Well, this makes us think, what is this seven-sealed scroll that God is holding in his hand? Well, 
it's certainly an important document. Most scrolls were only written on one side, not both. Also, the fact that it's sealed seven times would suggest that it is perfectly sealed or thoroughly sealed. What that means is no one is breaking the seals. Some suggest it's a scroll of justice. Some suggest it's a scroll of destiny. Some suggest it's a scroll of lamentation, which is considered by Ezekiel chapter 2. Some think it's the scroll of history. Here's what Herschel Hobbes writes. The one writing is the one writing it is the God of history. It is the holy history which shows the work of God within the context of human history. And it can be understood only in the light of God's redemptive purpose. Regardless of what evil men and nations may do, God is working out his purpose of redemption. In a given moment in history, it may seem that Satan is sovereign. But in the light of history as a whole, it is clear that God works in all things for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Chuck Swindoll wrote this, John would have even easily identified this type of document from the ancient world as a title deed or a last will and testament, an instrument of ownership that could only be opened by a legal redeemer or rightful heir. We know this to be true as John weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. But the elders around the throne tell him, don't weep anymore because Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, could open the scroll. Yet when John looks up trying to find a lion, he finds no such lion. Instead, he finds a lamb. Here's what it says in Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The image of the lamb is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's because he laid down his life as our sacrifice. He alone is worthy to take the title deed of the world, the last will and testament of God. He's the only one who can carry out its demands. Rejoicing begins again because Jesus is worthy. More songs of praise begin. Listen, you say, how do we know that Jesus is worthy? Well, it's in his description. Seven horns represents the perfect power of Jesus. Seven eyes were the Holy Spirit sent out into the world to save lost souls. Here's what Hobbes writes at the end of this. Thus the scroll of history is related to Christ who was slain and is alive forevermore, who possesses complete power and who is fully aware of the needs of his people. Praise God. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Let me show you this last one. Five minutes to cover six seals. You ready? Let's look at the seals that are broken on the scroll. As we enter Revelation 6, and until we get to the beginning of Revelation 8, we wrestle with seven seals of the scroll. Now, there are three sets of judgments that we'll read about in Revelation. There are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Each of the seventh, the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, open into a new set of judgments that are to come. The first seal is described in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. I don't have time to read the seal, but as you have read it, let me help you understand what this might present to us. 
If you're an amillennialist, you might consider this seal to be the ruling power that ultimately overthrows the Roman Empire. If you're a premillennialist, you might consider this seal to be false philosophies that become recognized as truth in the last days. Say, Danny, what do you mean? You might think about things like evolution or situational ethics or moral freedom or sexual perversions or socialism or liberalism. There are plenty of things that we can see in our world today that have become accepted lies. They've become accepted as truth. The fact that the writer has a bow with no arrow might suggest the non-combative war that begins through the philosophies of a fallen world. The second seal is described in verses 3 through 4. Now let me help you understand these and give you a picture of what's happening. If you're an amillennialist, you might consider this seal to be those who actually conquered Rome. This is a war cry. You would consider this the next world power and maybe even multiple wars that have taken place throughout history. The idea is that war has been unleashed on the world as a judgment and the result of sin. Now don't forget, if you're an amillennialist, you would consider these events to have already taken place in history. If you're a premillennialist, you might consider this seal to be what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 as wars and rumors of wars. Listen to what John Phillips writes. He personifies world war on a scale never before known on earth. War that will make the conflicts of this century seem like scenes in a stilted play. A little terrifying what may be to come. The third, third seal is described in verses 5 and 6. If you're an amillennialist, you would consider this seal to speak of the famines and inflation that always follow war. There are several references to famines after and during the Roman rule, as well as throughout various times in history. You could look at all of them if you're an amillennialist. If you're a premillennialist, you would also consider this to refer to famines and inflation that follow war. However, premillennialists are looking ahead to a future famine or possible economical disaster of the future. The four seals described in verses 7 and 8. Both amillennialists and premillennialists understand this to represent pestilence and death that also always follows war and famine. The difference is whether or not you think it's already happened, is currently happening, or will happen in the future. The fifth seal might be described as actually it can be described as all kinds of things. This is the fallen martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through, 9 through 11. There are many views as to who these people are. Obviously they're martyrs who have died for their faith in Jesus. Some think they're Christians who died under the hands of emperors like Nero and Domitian that we've already talked about from last week. Some think they're Christians who will be saved during the tribulation but will die because they stand for Jesus and refuse the mark of the beast. Either way, at this point, God has not finished adding to their numbers, so more will die for their faith in Jesus. But when he returns, they will be vindicated. They will receive their ultimate reward. Man, we're doing good. The sixth seal is described, verses 12 through 17, Revelation chapter 6. Now, if you're an amillennialist, you would consider these to be events in nature that we've been seeing over the past several years. If you're a premillennialist, you would consider these to be disasters that are on the horizon to usher in the signs of the end times. Either way, we can all agree that there will be terrible things ahead to usher in the judgment of God on this world. Now listen, we're almost done. Before we do, I do want to make a little note as we think forward to the trumpets that we'll experience next week. I don't want us to miss the opportunity to add a few notes about Revelation chapter 7, which seems to be 
a little nugget in between what's happening in the chaos of the world. Before the next judgments are seen by John, he's given a vision of salvation. He's given a vision of the sovereignty and power of God, even during the tribulation when the devil thinks he's in control. There are 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that are sealed and protected from the tribulation on earth. Then there are numerous believers seen in heaven praising God, representing those who have been martyred, dressed in white robes that died during the tribulation. Now there is scores of debate on who these people are and the meaning of their existence. Some suggest they're Jewish believers on earth, but Gentile believers in heaven. Some suggest the difference is just between believers on earth, true children of Israel, and believers who are in heaven. Regardless, the point is that Jesus protects his redeemed. Here's the picture that's painted in Revelation chapter 7, which is beautiful. The tribulation is underway. People are suffering because of the name of Jesus and suffering because of the sin of the world. God will bring about judgment after judgment after judgment. But listen to me. There will be those who are sealed, whether they're Jews or they're just a part of the perfect Jewish nation as the church. However you want to view it, here's the message. They will be given power and authority. They will be given protection so that they can share the message of Jesus. Why? So that even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of a time when the devil feels like he has absolute control of the world, guess what, friends? He still doesn't. Even in the midst of that, people will be saved and numbers will be added to the kingdom and they will die for their faith before they will ever receive a mark that represents the devil. Praise God for the seals that will be broken for the movement of God that will be seen even in the midst of a terrible time. So, looked at a lot of content, only scratched the surface of all that's happening from Revelation 2 to Revelation 8. But rather, rather than all the information that we've covered, I'd like to leave you with a few practical applications, really just a few challenges of why I think you should spend time wrestling with the book of Revelation, even if it's difficult to understand. And here they are. I've discovered in my own time that, listen, studying hard things in the Bible forces me to spend more meaningful time with Jesus, forces me to look at Scripture as a whole, to wrestle through prophecies and what it's going to look like in the end. It forces me to think about what Jesus will do when the time comes and where I am with him now. Forces me to spend meaningful time with Jesus. Thinking about what takes place in the world moving forward pushes me to share Jesus with people around me. When I am more heightened, more sensitive to what is on the horizon, it pushes me to have more compassion on people who do not know Christ. Understanding the basics of the book of Revelation encourages me to remain faithful to Jesus. Friends, I don't care where you fall. Danny, I think we'll be raptured up. We won't experience any of it. Danny, I think we're going to experience all of it. Most of us will be dead before it's over. I know that one day we'll reign with you. Whatever you feel, I don't care where you fall on your interpretation of Revelation. Here's the truth. <laughs> We have victory in Jesus. And then lastly, listen, processing the book of Revelation reminds me of God's goodness. Danny, what do you mean God's goodness? These seals are going to be broken. Wars are going to happen. People are going to be fleeing for the caves. Danny, you ain't even got to the trumpets yet when fire's falling down from heaven. You ain't got to the bowls yet when a third and a fourth of the, of, of the world is dying off. Danny, what are you talking about? The goodness of God. He comes back and he gives victory to those who follow him. It, it may get worse before it gets better. But friends, listen to me. We know 
Jesus. Danny, why should I care about what's happening in Revelation? Because it will challenge you deeper in your walk with Jesus and cause you to share that with people around you. Friend, make no mistake, wherever you fall, Jesus is coming back and he will set up his kingdom and create a new heaven and a new earth and the devil will be destroyed. Friend, listen to me. Where will you find yourself? Where will you find your family? Where will you find your friends? Where will you find your neighbors? Friends, it's going to happen. We don't know when, but it's gonna happen. Where will you be? This book is for enlightenment, encouragement, engagement. See why those lenses are so important as we read this book? It should cause us to live our lives faithfully for Jesus.